Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, uh, we're bringing back the uh, sort of Weeds uh, interview shows uh, for, for, for a special this week. And my guest today, Matt Klein, he's, he's a writer for Barron's, and he's also the co-author of this really cool new book. It's called Trade Wars or Class Wars. Uh, you know, we have a conversation. We delve into sort of the, the thesis of that book, what the U.S.-China economic relationship is really about. And, and then we get to, like, really nerd out on some of my personal favorite subjects about the economic structure of Germany and the functioning of the European Union, how we should think about that. Uh, at the very end, we get into the origins of World War one. So it's it's a lot of fun stuff that can take your mind off of uh, some of the current pandemic problems, and, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, my guest today, Matt Klein, is economics commentator at Barron's, uh, and also, more importantly for our purposes, the author or uh, co-author, I guess, of a, of a great new book. It is called Trade Wars Are Class Wars. And the thesis of the book, I, I like a book with a good title like this, because the thesis of the book is that we should understand trade wars as class wars, right? That's right. That's right. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> nice and the, straightforward. Uh... So let's, so, so, to cash that out, right? I mean, I guess a sort of conventional way to think about this is that trade policy is a realm of international competition. And so Donald Trump, because he likes to make things really explicit, he will talk all the time about, we're not winning in trade, or I'm going to change things and we're going to win in trade. And then more sophisticated people wouldn't talk like that. But you have this whole apparatus of trade negotiations, and then we'll say China made a concession or the United States made a concession as if the countries are people with unitary interests. And maybe it's not quite so crude as Trump puts it with winners and losers. Maybe we can find a mutually beneficial arrangement, but it's still a question of like state versus state. And your project in this book really is to sort of crack open the state structures and see that we have, as you know, if you think about anything other than trade and economic policy, there's a contestation of interests inside countries and trade should be seen in that light. That's right. And I think in, in general, one of the things that I think is interesting in the book is that trade, you know, it's often considered to be the sort of different, you know, unique element of economics, but really it's just the same thing that goes on within countries 
spills across national borders, it's all the same mechanisms. So, you know, thinking about trade as being somehow magically different or better or worse is, is I think, you know, the first error that people make. Hmm. And then, as you were saying, the other problem is that thinking of countries as the unit of analysis. And I think that's sort of natural for international economics, why people think about countries, because countries are, like, that's where the statistics come from, are national agencies. And even, like, when they add things up globally, the IMF will go to national agencies before they just add them up to get, you know, world output or whatever. So it's very natural to think of it at the country level. But, you know, the whole point of our book is that really it's what's going on within countries that's much more interesting and relevant for understanding, you know, winning and losing from trade. And this is, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a in part like a, a fragment of how economics is taught, right? Like you're sort of given this, they call it a closed economy model. And so it's like you pretend that there's no such thing as trade and you talk about how a country's economy might work. And then there's like a trade chapter. And and you do that, but but the the real world doesn't function that way. Like trade is very embedded into our daily lives, right? You don't like do a right. special thing. We're like, and now I'm doing some trade. You just buy stuff, and some of it is made in foreign countries, right? And I mean, I think one of the things that that's interesting relating to that is that you know the way economics talks about trade, you sort of go too far a little in the other direction, which is that, you know, the reason why trade is generally considered good and beneficial is that it's about expanding market size, mm -hmm. which is absolutely right. I mean, we, we talk about this a bit in the book and that's, you know, right. You have more consumers, more or more potential customers, you have more competition of producers. And that's, you know, all these sort of productivity benefits you associate with trade. That's why people say trade is good. But one of the things we want to talk about is that that's not the only way to think about trade. It's mm -hmm. also equally relevant that trade allows, you know, other things to be transmitted across your know, borders. You basically, you know, you call it savings, you call it excess production, whatever, you can call it financial bubbles. But like, whether it's good or bad, that's sort of the other element of it. It's not just creating larger market size. It's about actually the transmission of production from one place to another in ways that can be either good or bad. And, and you know, that's really a big focus of our book as well. Right. So the sort of, uh, I guess the, the, the main case of this that has been on people's minds before coronavirus, and, and I think will will reemerge, is that the, the United States runs large trade deficit with, you know, I mean, globally we do, but especially with China and with some other Asian countries. And one way of thinking about this, like the, the Trump way, is he says like, ah, they're taking $300 billion from us. And the economics class way you're supposed to say is like, no, ha ha ha, like it's good because we are getting all this stuff and it's good to get stuff. The purpose of an economy is to have stuff. So we're glad that, that China sends us stuff. Um, but in those same classes, at least as, as I was taught them, you would be told things that don't seem true of the real world, like that these imbalances won't persist for a very long time. Right. Whereas the, the real world, like we've been running this deficit with China for a very long period of time. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the assumption is that in the real in, in the class is that the trade deficits are being financed by profit seeking investors who would only be allowing Americans to spend more than they earn, which is what a trade deficit is because they're worthwhile investments to be made in the United States and that there are higher returns to be had from investing in, in U.S. projects than projects elsewhere in the world. And if that were true, then, you know, then yes, everyone's a winner, right? It makes sense. It would make sense in that world for the U.S. to be having trade deficits. We would be better off because our investment returns, you know, the, the investing in the United States would 
make everyone better off, both in the U.S. and globally, because the foreign investors would earn nice returns. We'd end up with more stuff longer term, and it's okay that we have this deficit. And that's sort of the standard model. And that's sometimes true. There are situations in the world where that's happened in the past. One of my favorite examples in the book is because people don't really know about it now, is, is South Korea, right? Mm-hmm. South Korea has been running trade surpluses for a very long time. It's all, you know, more than 20 years at this point. So people sort of associate it as this sort of permanent trade surplus country. But up until 97, 98, they'd been running trade deficits ever since independence from Japan. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. That helped them turn from what essentially was the poorest country in the world after the end of the Korean War into a country that now has GDP per capita comparable to France. So that clearly worked out extremely well for them. So there's nothing inherently wrong with trade deficits. The problem is if you have uh, trade imbalances that are not being driven by you know profit-maximizing investors actually looking for the best returns, but you know other reasons. And that in that situation, which is what you have in the United States, you just have a lot of money coming in. Instead of financing worthwhile projects, you know we really need to be doing. You just have it essentially crowding out other things. Um, in the case of the U.S., it basically means we're just producing less ourselves that we could be doing. And so where does it originate from, right? The the Korean example, this is textbook kind of stuff, right? It's like Korea had some good policies, uh, but they were very poor. So their growth rate was good. So people wanted to invest in Korea. So they had a trade deficit and, you know, eventually it goes away. But it's a it's a, like South Korea is a really happy economic development success story. Uh, but so in, in the current imbalances in the U.S., where, where does it where does it really come from? Well, this is the other half of the title of the book, which is it comes from class conflict, essentially, that you have particular situations in China and in Germany particularly, but also in other countries as well, where income and purchasing power have been redistributed from the vast majority of people who would spend it towards entities that would not spend it. Then instead they save it. So it's either the super rich or it's companies or it's companies owned by the super rich. You know, that the particular distinction doesn't really matter that much. But and essentially, you know, because they're not buying goods and services which create jobs either locally or in other countries that, you know, would export things to that country, they just buy financial assets. That could be you know, U.S. Treasury bonds, it could be stocks, it could be whatever. But the point is, they're essentially buying claims on other people who, you know, need money to invest. Which again, that's fine if people actually need money to invest. But if they don't, then you have essentially the two main things that have happened in the rich countries over the past 30 years, which is very, very low interest rates, and bubbles. That's that's what happens if there's nothing good to invest in. You just invest in things that are dumb. Right. So so money just sort of piles up and up and up in a country that, you know, some places like you could just go there and you can see it's like they, they have really little houses. Right. There's like not much buildings uh, or factories and they like they need investment. Right. To, to build things or you might have some great opportunities and, and the money flows into that. But what you've seen in the United States is kind of you know, like this is like a mature, advanced country. Our population is not growing very fast. We have a lot of buildings and things. And so you've had this very, very low interest rate regime and a lot of, I guess you might call it like, well, you're saying bubbles. It's like like efforts to, fi- to find some angles, right, to, to kind of put the money in and a lot of uh, instability. But so why does this happen on the, on the Chinese side? Like, wh- why don't Chinese people just have more money and buy more stuff. So essentially, that's a reflection of their political system and their political economy. And you know, as we trace through in the book, basically, by the time you get one of the reactions to um, the 1980s. So in the 1980s, you have a big liberalization. The end. You know, Mao dies. 
Deng Xiaoping comes in, and you have, for the first time in basically a century in China, a chance where people are at peace and the government isn't actively trying to screw them over. And you get rapid growth and rapid productivity increases. But uh, there are issues in terms of imbalances between the rural economy and the urban industrial economy. And you have, one of the consequences of that is very rapidly increases food prices. That leads to unrest, as you get in the late 1980s. Part of that unrest translates into the pro-democracy movement, which also is, you know, separate, but you know, also related insofar as there's discontent, there's a sense of opening, you know, maybe we can ask for more things. Uh, and then, you know, that all falls apart quite violently. And the people who come into power after that are saying, okay, well, clearly the exact system we had in the 80s was problematic. So the initial response was to roll back the economic liberalization. And that didn't work well at all. Uh, you had basically, I mean, it didn't look like a recession in the sense that GDP was still growing, but relative to what it had been doing, you have this massive drop. So it's effectively a downturn, like 89 and 90. Mm-hmm. And then um, Deng Xiaoping uses this as an opportunity to get back into power because he'd lost influence as a consequence of the pro-democracy movement. But he comes back in with a southern tour and says, we are going to do two things. One, we're going to maintain our absolute political grip um, we're not going to allow any kind of dissent, really, or any alternative source of power. But also, we're going to get people to go along with us by promoting extremely rapid economic growth, you know, no matter how. And the way the easiest way you can do that, especially when you're in a relatively poor country, which China was at the time, I mean, it's still a poor country, but at that point, it's extremely poor and underdeveloped, is you just invest as much as possible. Because mm-hmm. really, any investment you're going to do, whether it's infrastructure or housing or manufacturing facilities or whatever, it's probably going to end up creating a lot of value. And how do you invest... Quick, how do you get a lot of investment? Well, one thing you can do is attract foreign investment, which is something they, they actively did. And the other thing that they did was essentially say, well, we're going to basically take resources from people who would be spending that on sort of consumption, goods and services, mm-hmm. like things that normal people want. And we'll take resources from them and, and give that to businesses and governments and so and local government entities so that they can do investment on their behalf. And that's a very old model. And it works, you know, more or less well, depending upon your circumstances. In that case, it worked pretty well. And the foreign investment was similar in the sense that foreign investment was attracted in part because Chinese workers were extremely underpaid mm-hmm. relative to workers elsewhere. It's not so much that wages were low, because wages have always been lower in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, Madagascar, places like that. But you don't see manufacturing booms there. The reason is that wage, what matters is wages relative to productivity. And in China, the government basically said, we're going to make that extremely low. Um, you know, unions are outlawed, things like that. You have a very large, relatively uh, compliant rural migrant workforce. People came from the countryside to the cities, but they don't have any legal rights there. So that, you know, things like that. So that's that's part of it. Then they also did things like, well, we're not going to really have much pollution regulation for a long time. So if you're thinking about that's something you're interested in, then that's an attractive place to go. They'll subsidize things like construction costs or electricity costs. So that all those things like that will help attract foreign investment. And then on top of that, the Chinese banking system. For a very long time, the way it worked essentially was if you were a saver in China, you really had only one option, which was you put your money in a bank deposit. Right. The bank deposit would be pay extremely low interest rates relative to sort of underlying economic growth. And it would basically take advantage of people so then they could offer very low interest rates to preferred borrowers. Now, the banks would do well because they still got a spread between the deposits and their loans. But the, the borrowers did really well because they were able to borrow at rates lower than economic growth. So they could always repay those loans. It was very cheap. And then the savers got screwed because they were getting vastly underpaid. You know, eventually that changed. So then you had more options. You know, housing became a thing that people could buy starting in the 2000s. And there's been some liberalization of interest rates since then. But, you know, that was a huge transfer of wealth. And my co-author, Michael Pettis, is really, the, you know, the expert in this stuff. He basically was saying this is worth, you know, several percentage points of Chinese GDP transferred from household savers to businesses 
every year as a consequence. So we have a sort of story on three parts here, right? It's a it's a suppression of wages in the mm. urban manufacturing economy. It's a suppression of consumption. Uh, so you have a high savings rate. And then it's this sort of savings in monopolization of savings opportunities yep. so that uh you the the typical saver is earning a very low return and right. you're generating through all three of these things a kind of an investment boom so gdp is growing a lot and a typical person's living standards also go up during this period but by less than you sort of than you might think by just looking at the the headline number. That's right. It's one of those situations where, you know, you can say a rising tide lifts all boats. So if you're a typical Chinese worker and your living standards are going up, you know, 6% a year, you think that's great. Of course, if the average, you know, person in the Chinese economy's living standards is going up by 10% a year, and that average is driven by, you know, people at the very top end whose living standards are going up, you know, 20% a year or 30% a year, then like, obviously the 6% doesn't look as good. But if you don't have that sense of perspective, 6% is great. And, you know, again, compared to, you know, the century before of war, civil war, revolution, you know, all that other stuff, famine, right? This, you're not going to complain too much. So that is a situation where, you know, this, this, this sort of political economy can work well. The problem is you pass a certain point and then the investments you're doing aren't necessarily creating as much value as they were before. And that's when you start getting into, you know, other troubles, which really starts in the 2000s. So this is like, you know, you, you were saying this before, but it's when, when a country is desperately poor, right? When there's very little physical capital, then it's like almost anything you could invest in is a good project. Right. It might it might not be optimal in some kind of sense, but like it's good. Like you need more houses, you need more offices, you need more roads. You just need more of everything. And then the richer you get, the less true that becomes. Right. The more important it is that your investments be close to some kind of theoretical optimumness, because there's like plenty of generic stuff lying around. And that sort of becomes the 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 China issue, right? That they, you keep having this sort of capital-intensive, investment-led economy, and it can look very impressive if you just kind of like swoop by it. You're like, whoa, that's that's a lot of cool new stuff they've got. Um, but then you kind of look under the hood, and you're like, well, is this useful? Is this really what people need? Right. And I mean, even it, and then it gets tricky, because sometimes even if like it does seem useful, as you said, like it can look cool, but like what else could they have had? Right. Right. I mean, we're talking about a country where, you know, Obviously, there are very nice parts here to Beijing or Shanghai, places like that, Guangzhou. But, you know, most of the country is still extremely poor. You know, about half the people still live in, you know, these rural villages that are that are quite poor. I mean, it's better than it was, obviously. But, you know, again, you look at that and say, when you see that they're building sort of these, you know, empty apartment blocks in sort of like Inner Mongolia, or you have these subway lines that are built out in like marshland where nobody lives in, you know, other cities, you know, sort of second tier cities, you think, is that really the best use and especially in a society where, you know, you know, to go a little bit off track, but like they don't really have an unemployment insurance system for most people. Right. Um, it's basically because so many of the people who work in the cities are these rural people who came from the countryside. And because the people who come from the countryside aren't eligible for unemployment, or basically all of them aren't. The unemployment insurance system essentially is you can go back to your village and be a subsistence farmer. Right. Is that is that a good way to run a I mean, they think it, it works <laughs> relatively well, but I mean, that seems like there there's room for improvement there and things like that. Well, and, and, but I mean, I think I think the welfare state point is is key, right? Because this is sort of the at least to me was like the the takeaway of your book that the these kind of win win, right? That like what the typical American really needs from China 
is the same thing that the typical Chinese person needs from China. And that's to say, look, this is a middle income country now. It's it's not rich, but it's it's not poor. And it should have like a something like a regular welfare state where people get unemployment insurance or they get retirement benefits or they can see a doctor. Right. And it's not like it's not as cool to show in photos to tourists. Like here's a doctor's office in some random village you probably wouldn't go to is like less impressive than a maglev train. But like people people need that kind of stuff. And that would support like Americans could sell things to people if they had, you know, more basic income standards. Exactly. And I mean that's this sort of relates also to you know, one of the points you make in the book is that when people talk about China's high national savings rate, you know, one of the misconceptions is that's because you imagine like Chinese households are, you know, they're very, you know, your average Chinese worker is very abstemious in their consumption and they're squirreling things away. It's like, that's not really what's happening. Mostly what's happening is they're just workers aren't earning any money in the, or not earning any, but like they're earning much less than they should. And so, you know, by sort of by definition, if the money's going to people who do save entities, you know, mm-hmm. that's part of the book. The other part of the book, though, is the extent that workers, the extent that workers, regular people are saving, it's often because the social safety net in China is so poor that they have to have a lot of money in the bank to compensate for the things that, like there isn't really a good old age insurance system. There isn't really a good health insurance system. I mean, there there are these things exist, but they're not very good. You know, the unemployment insurance system is not very good. So you have to be compensating for yourself. You know, you need to essentially use self-insurance to compensate for the lack of social insurance. And so I guess you could say one of the sort of meta themes of the book is if you had better social insurance, then overall consumption can rise. That can lead to better living standards for everyone, not just in their country, but globally. That's just sort of a general theme that applies to China and applies to the United States as well, quite frankly. Right. So, I mean, that's the sort of like completely different perspective from the the, the kind of global clash. So so I, I want to take a break here and, and then talk about talk about Germany. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. 
Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So you you mentioned this at, at the beginning, but the sort of other, you know, big case in, in your book is Germany. That's the other big um, surplus production com- country. They're exporting all, all kinds of stuff. And, and you have a, a I think um, Weeds listeners probably have like a pretty uh, positive impression of Germany. A lot of people in sort of U.S. progressive politics have gotten excited about Germany in recent years. Uh, we've had some some folks on talking about, you know, Germany's strong labor unions, stuff like that. Um, and there's definitely like, I, I like Germany. There's a lot of nice stuff there. Um, but it's it's an interesting situation. Like they are exporting incredible amounts of stuff to the world and if i have asked them like german politicians i'm like what like what are you doing here like why don't you just be richer and they'll say like well it's not our fault that our products are so good yeah i think that's a really big misunderstanding on their part uh you know one of the things you know just to get back to where you started with there are a lot of things in Germany that are good and that I think other countries could learn from, including the United States. But I think what's really interesting and what we highlight in the book is that the direction of change over the past 30 years is something that I think a lot of people really haven't appreciated. And, and you see this in some other European countries as well. We didn't focus on but like you see this in Sweden, too, mm-hmm. for, for example. Um, but essentially what's happened in Germany is that relative to where it was, it's much less friendly as a place for workers than you know 30 years ago. Relative to where it was the quality of infrastructure and the quality of government investment in public goods is much, 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 much worse than it was 30 years ago or further back. And you put those things together, you know, the level of inequality, both before, you know, tax and transfers and then after tax and transfers in terms of the quality of the welfare state and things like that, all these things have changed pretty dramatically in Germany in a direction that American readers would find familiar if you didn't say that it was Germany. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the puzzles we talk about in the book is actually like if you know, given the German experience, given the American experience, like why is the U.S. not more like Germany in certain ways? That's a whole other chapter. But um, in Germany, I mean, the thing that is interesting, like why do they export so much? Well, their exports actually just sort of grow the global economy, you know, for better or worse. Like basically, they have a whole suite of companies that make things that people in the rest of the world want a certain amount. And as long as the rest of the world is growing, those companies will be fine selling things. The real interesting story in Germany is imports. Right. And that's the reason why they have a surplus is exports minus imports. So if you look at the 90s versus the 2000s, which is really sort of the striking car- you know, comparison for me, is in the 90s, Germany basically had balanced trade. It was a slight trade deficit, but basically balanced. And this was during the period of reunification. And like it wasn't a good time for Germany. We talked about this. It was, it was a pretty big economic slowdown. There was an initial boom after reunification, and then it was a long sort of recession, slow growth. But then you had like a little tech bubble there. Anyhow, nevertheless, through this whole period, more or less balanced trade. What happens after 2000, is that imports and exports both slow down a lot. So imports and exports, you know, manufactured goods are both growing about like 9% or so in the 90s on average a year. In the 2000s, 
exports goes down to about like 4% growth. It's a big slowdown in exports. That's not, you know, a big export boom for them. But imports growth slows down to like 3%, roughly. And so that suddenly gives you a big imbalance. And so by the time you get to the mid-2000s, you have the situation where they have a huge trade surplus where previously they had not. And, you know, is that a sign of German competitiveness? No. Is that a sign of, did did they even increase their market share within, you know, within Europe? Not really. I mean, a, a tiny bit, but not compared to like, you know, the Czech Republic. You know, I mean, basically, like it was flat. So the the idea that they somehow were doing something phenomenally successful with their exports is not really something I think they should hold a lot of water. Right, and it's it's a very it's a very frustrating conversation with German political elites because you try to have a conversation with them that's about trade balances, and they insist, at least when I've talked to them, on having a conversation that's about gross exports. And these are just not the same thing, right? I mean, any, you know, any country, Germany is a sort of medium-sized country, but any country that is both prosperous and small, like Finland or or Denmark, they, you have to export a ton of shit because you also have to import a ton of shit because you're like a little rinky-dink country. You know, you just, you're not, there's only so much stuff you're going to make in Finland. So you need your specializations, you need your exports, right? And that's fine. That's, that's like why we have trade. Right. In general. But then there's this separate question of balances. Right. Which is like, okay, like people want to buy Siemens's things. People want to buy Volkswagens like that's great. So then you earn money and you're supposed to go buy other stuff. But the Germans have really squeezed their domestic purchases of uh, of things in, in general and read this as like, we're an economic superstar, right? Even as sort of normal people's living standards. I mean, they're high, right? Germany is a rich country, but they're they're stagnated. I mean, the other way, I mean, what's crazy is even if you like talk to some people in Germany, like the sort of more sophisticated argument for justifying this is we know we have short surpluses and they're problematic, but the thing is we're an aging society and we're slow growing. So we need to accumulate foreign assets to provide for, you know, our country collectively mm-hmm. in retirement. You think, okay, but then why do you keep losing money on your foreign investments? Right. I mean, that's that's like the other crazy thing is that would make sense if returns outside of Germany were so much better than returns in Germany, at least on the return, you know, the assets, that, the investments they make. But that's not what's happened. They basically send money abroad and then they just keep losing it <laughs> consistently. Uh, you know, you can, I mean, one way of looking at this, there are other ways of looking at this. One way of looking at this is just say, okay, look at all of the sort of cumulative trade surpluses that they've had. And how that translate? That should tr- translate to how much they're buying abroad in assets. More like, technically, it's current account surpluses, but you know, in Germany, it's pretty much the same sure. thing. And then say, okay, over time, that's you know, x number of trillion euros that they've they've been spending to buy stuff, buy foreign assets. And then you say, okay, well, how much has their overall you know net foreign asset position changed? And it turns out it's like thirty percent less than that. So that means they've lost a lot of money. They keep, and of course, we can point to specific things. Like they bought a lot of, you know, stupid subprime bonds. They bought a lot of stuff in Greece that just blew up. I mean, there are a lot of other individual things we can point to, but it's like this is just clearly no one's better off from this. They're not better off. We're not better off. Like why? Just stop doing that. You know. And there's, I mean, you you alluded to this, but there's a there's a, a starvation on some level of domestic infrastructure investment that you know, and I think this can surprise people because you know you go to Munich and the S Bahn is really cool um, and it's it's really good, um, but that was all built in the seventies, you know, which is good. Like that, what's good about infrastructure is it lasts a long time, right? The New York subway is like a million years old and and still more or less runs, uh, but they're not doing what 
you might think a country could be doing with sort of accumulated surpluses, which is creating some kind of useful public goods that would... Because that's another... It's not saving, quote unquote, but it's like a way that a country can safeguard its economic future is by accumulating tangible, useful things and not just financial assets. Yeah, ultimately, I'd say that's actually the best kind of saving is to have useful things because, you know, financial saving is you're getting claims on other people's production. You know, you're lending to a government or you're buying stock in a company or you're lending against a mortgage, whatever. Like, but that asset that you've bought only is valuable if the people you give the money to are able to use the money you gave them to do something useful in the real world. Mm -hmm. You know, ultimately it all comes back to productive investments in physical capital or intellectual capital, things like that. Like you actually, that's ultimately where all of these things have their value come from. And, you know, you're exactly right. If the alternative is we're going to, you know, if you're going to lend to the Greek government to have them build the Athenian metro system, which is very nice, I mean, okay, fine. But if you're going to, or, or buy German submarines, I mean, that's sort of, you know, you're lending to yourself. Right. But, you know, at the same time, you know, just to, to, you know, to, to talk about the German infrastructure problem, if you take German infrastructure, government um, investment spending, you subtract depreciation or the, you know, their estimate of depreciation, essentially like all things getting breaking down and, you know, required maintenance. It's been negative mm-hmm. for like 20 years. So things have just been getting worse. And this is showing up in, you know, real practical examples. So, for example, German broadband speeds are basically among the slowest in all of Europe. Not just Western Europe, but Europe as a whole, which is pretty bad. You know, you think in the modern digital economy, you'd want to have internet that works. And in Germany, it's quite poor. You have roads that are just breaking down. You have bridges that go across the Rhine that people can't use. So they have to reroute trucks through local streets. And so, you know, they run on diesel and they're polluting the air where people live and they're going much more slowly. All these sort of practical, basic things that, you know, their trains, you know, have had increasing number of accidents or slowdowns. I mean, all these things that we think of that are just, you know, it's so obvious that the amount of value you'd create if you spent money now would be so much greater than it costs, especially given the fact that like interest rates in Germany have been literally negative for quite a while. And before and you know, after transition, they've been negative for you know decades. And yet they're just not doing this. And that's just incredibly wasteful. It's like you have to think that the the you know you can say you're saving for the future, but like you must think that the trajectory of the German economy is just going to be negative forever to not justify doing these investments. It's the only way that makes sense. And it's it's reciprocal. I mean, because obviously I, I mean I think uh, a lot of Americans have slightly hazy impressions of, of Europe, uh, but like the passenger train situation in Germany, uh, while it compares favorably to the United States, is substandard by European uh, metrics. It's it's the the much worse than France or Italy or Spain. Uh, some of the quality is deteriorating, and unlike in the United States, the geography is very favorable. Germany has a lot of medium sized cities; they're not that far apart. Right. You could do a lot of, uh, you know, things people would use fast trains con- connecting their, their their different cities. And, you know, if you had bridges that worked, if you had broadband speeds that are fast, that would generate the kind of economic growth prospects that they are instead telling you, well, we have to accumulate these foreign savings because our growth prospects are so bad. Uh, but like the growth prospects are bad because they're not they they have these like good global brands, right? But they're not laying the groundwork for a real economic future. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, essentially, the train point is yeah, it was good in the eighties, right? But then if you don't 
update it for 40 years or whatever, then like it's not going to stay good. <laughs> You'll be lucky if it mostly still works, but it's certainly not going to be good in comparison, and it might not even be good in absolute terms. So that's essentially their problem and sort of writ large. And so it's a... I, I never know exactly what to think about this. It, it, it always strikes me as a kind of weird defeatism that has wafted over the the, the German political class. Um, but what what's the what's the class war angle here? Because that's 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 your theme here. Sure. So there are a couple things. So one is that you know this cutback in government investment essentially was you can think of it as sort of partly reaction to the costs of reunification. So when East Germany was absorbed into West Germany, there was initially a lot of optimism that you, you know, essentially like these are Germans, they've been apart from us, but not that far apart from us. You know, hopefully if we can give them our good managerial skills and our good technology and our good political institutions, they'll quickly converge and everyone's going to get a lot richer and it's going to be great. It's basically this massive, you know, benefit, you know, not to say free lunch, but like, we're going to have this mass amount of wealth creation. It's going to be fantastic. And that's what people thought. Right, so like huge catch-up growth in... Yeah. A, how, how big is the former GDR? It's like 25% of the country? Yeah, it's only like a quarter of the population yeah. of the total. Yeah. Yeah, so they were hoping for like a like a, like a a really happy yeah, economic growth have, spurt. Right. And basically, it didn't work out that way. And there are a couple of reasons it didn't work out that way. I mean, there was a degree of bungling on the part of the West. There was also just like, I think things were a lot worse than they thought they were going to be. So, I mean, there's there's an interesting paper that came out, I think, very recently. This is basically um, after, you know, we'd written the book, so we can't cite it. But essentially <laughs> that, like, the, it wasn't actually a random sample who was on the east and the west side of the border because uh -huh. there had been an open border for a while, both, like, during World War II itself and then immediately after the Soviets showed up. So essentially whoever was left behind were people much more likely to be sympathetic to sort of the Soviet project. And so that means, you know, you can read all sorts of things into that, but you combine that with the fact that it's, like, 45 years under, okay. under that kind of system and... Anyhow, that's that's one element of it. But yeah, it did, didn't work out as well. And then you have a situation where there's sort of these permanent welfare transfers um, from west to east, particularly the southwest, which is really the rich part of the country, which is you know the Munich, Stuttgart area, Frankfurt, uh, to the east. And you have people who are there, like, I don't want to have my tax euros go, go to tax Deutschmarks go to these people. Sure. So you have this push for you know what they would call you know essentially social security reform. And that led ultimately led to under what was ostensibly a left wing government, incidentally, um, to cuts in unemployment benefits and cuts in um, to sort of cuts in health benefits, although, but like just all sorts of welfare cuts across the board. So this is this is when uh, Schroeder is chancellor. That's right, in the early two thousand. That's right. And you'll you'll see if if you Google this is called the uh, the Hearts Four reforms, right? Yes. That's the yeah. So basically, um, it was named after. Uh, Peter Hartz was the guy who's actually the head of HR at Volkswagen. And when Gerhard Schroeder was the minister president of the state of, I'm going to get this, Lower Saxony, I think is where it was, I believe, um, which is where Volkswagen is based in Wolfsburg. They knew each other. And basically in the 90s, they came up, you know, he, they worked together to do this deal to save jobs, basically pay cuts for saving jobs, which was a very common thing throughout the 1990s, part of the economics. So if you want to go back even further before it became government policy, you had the situation of German companies just firing people and cutting hours and, uh, you know, union membership plunges. I mean, unions are much stronger in Germany than they are in the United States, but that's a very low bar. Sure. <laughs> Relative to Germany's own standards, like unions have just collapsed. Union membership has fallen by about, I think, half since the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, the share 
it's some there's been some reversion since but basically between like 19 you know the early night between the early 90s and 2007 which is really extreme you had a situation where the share of national income going to investors you know go capital versus labor it's just this massive one-way trip and there's a period basically in the 2000s that same period where germany's trade surplus widens massively where basically they get a surplus and that surplus widens massively as um, imports are just incredibly sluggish. That period is consistent with the period where the share, the growth of German national income is like seventy percent of that goes to investors versus workers, which is crazy because investors are not you know particularly large share of the population. They don't normally have a large share of income, but they they capture an overwhelming share of the growth. But that was a trend also in the nineties as well. And you see massive, you not necessarily offshoring, but like out you know moving companies. A lot of production moves to eastern, central, and eastern Europe because it's cheaper. Uh, and and you know cheaper in the sense of workers being underpaid. Right. A lot of people actually there speak German, sort of for historical reasons. So it's a great deal for these these companies. You know, I guess there had been a hope, or, you know, originally that East Germany would have been the recipient of these things, but again, they sort of bungled the transition. That didn't it didn't work out way. So this is like jobs are going to Slovakia and Czech exactly, Republic right. and right. Uh, right. Volkswagen buys Škoda or launches it. Yeah, or something. all that stuff. Basically, yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, this just happens at a massive scale, and workers are really hosed during this period. And then it becomes essentially official policy in the 2000s. So before this was sort of just like a thing happening with companies. And then you get to the 2000s and the thought is unemployment is really bad. It'd been bad in the 90s, but we like, how can we reduce unemployment? And so the thought was, well, if everyone just gets wage cuts or, and we cut unemployment benefits, so basically people have to work, then we can reduce unemployment. Right. Which I guess you could say is a good example of sort of you know, letting a bad target guide your policy. Like, yeah, you'll succeed at hitting the target, but I mean, to what end? So essentially what happens is it's not like all these former, you know, manufacturing workers in, in their 30s or something had, had had lost their jobs and they get jobs. That's not what happens. It's basically people who were in their 50s who had lost jobs and like they're just going to live off unemployment until they hit retirement age, which wouldn't have been that long. They now have to take some really low paying jobs like cleaning lady or something. And that's like basically what happens. Like the massive increase in German employment is part-time employment for people just below retirement age at low-wage jobs. Which you know is that a jobs miracle that you should be exporting the rest of Europe? No. I mean, is it better than it was before? I mean, you, I guess you could argue about that. I don't think it's obviously the case. People at the time didn't think it was the case. Um, you know, the German. You know, as part of you know the European Union, all countries they survey you know the number of people at risk of poverty who are working and. In Germany, that share just absolutely spiked after these reforms, and it's still elevated compared to a lot of other European countries, Western European countries that you think would be Germany's peers. Is that a success? I don't, I don't see why. Right. And, and then this sort of exports itself outward, right? That, you know, right. it, it it works in the sense of it, it hits the target. The unemployment rate becomes low because if you, you have a rich, uh, highly productive society and you suppress wages – people will get jobs doing something. But by definition, if if your whole economic growth strategy is that people are being underpaid relative to their production, uh, somebody else has to consume the production because the underpaid people can't, right? So this becomes the German surplus. Then you have these deficits in much of the rest of Europe. And then you obviously, there's a financial crisis, but now the Germans are running around saying, well, everybody should run their government this way, right? And that this is going to be the strategy for Greece and for Spain and, and for Portugal. And everyone should pay workers less than their productivity and export to someone else. Yeah, it was a complete 
you know, intellectual disaster and, and policy disaster. I mean, the, you know, just to highlight what you were saying, if Germany had been a closed economy, if they didn't have exports and they tried this strategy, it would have been incredibly self-defeating because you just would have been hurting your own customers. Companies wouldn't have been able to sell more. They would have sold less. And you just would have had this not downward spiral, but just permanently lower level of economic activity and everyone's worse off. The reason why they were able to sort of get away with it, and this is why, you know, we talk about how trade allows, you know, you know, unequal societies to essentially dump their problems elsewhere and in some ways perpetuates inequality in in some of these societies is precisely because they were able to export elsewhere, that they were able to find customers for their products that were outside of Germany that weren't facing these problems. So relatively speaking, you know, Spain, France, Italy were, were actually kind of egalitarian. And they, and they certainly, in terms of the direction of change, very different from what happened in Germany. And that's why you had, you know, very different response in those countries prior to 2008. And then, as you say, you have the crisis. And Germany seems to do relatively well, largely because their exporters, you know, to a certain sense, got lucky that you know they had been selling you know submarines to the Greek the Greek military, and then they were able to switch you know sort of the aggregate level switch to sell you know industrial machinery to China, and they managed that transition well enough. They thought, okay, like everyone can do this. Of course, that doesn't work as soon as China starts slowing down, which is something that happened you know actually before you know the thing we'd been thinking about you know before as the book was you know before the book came out was that this was like the interesting thing which you sort of saw in 2018-2019 was that as China is cutting back on its domestic investment, going back to earlier in the conversation, you know trying to cut back on wasteful, stupid things, that's going to hurt Germany disproportionately, and that in fact had been what we've been seeing, what we were seeing. You know, obviously now it's like a whole different, no different <laughs> thing. But you know, it's it's a strategy that makes you perpetually vulnerable to situations elsewhere. But Germany, you know, either they understood that at some level or they didn't care. And so a lot of people, I think, really believe they really believe that it worked. And a lot of people in other European countries also believe that's the way to go. I mean, there's there's a level of cooperation among you know sort of the equivalent elite classes in places like Spain, Italy, and Greece and elsewhere that think, oh yeah, actually we wish we could do these things too. We just never been able to get away with it before and now we have this opportunity. And I mean you can look at a lot of what happened in the euro crisis as, as partly a reflection of that. There were you know there always was this base of people who wanted to p- pull off these kinds of uh, institutional changes that they saw happen in Germany and they just couldn't get away with it. Uh, but now, you know, they have an opportunity to do so, and Germany is essentially telling them to do so, and they negotiate these treaties. And what that ultimately does, it basically magnifies German, you know, the German problem for the world into a European problem for the world, and it's much larger. And it's, uh, you, you know, I mean, this is the, 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 the trade versus class, right? But it's, it's convenient for everyone uh, involved in orchestrating this to have it be understood that, well, Germany is being mean to Spain, or well, Spain is asking for charity from Germany when actually right. it's a economic model that is beneficial to the owners of German companies is trying to get a similar economic model created in Spain, which will be beneficial to the owners of Spanish companies. And because you can buy stocks across international boundaries. It's like it's not even obvious that the owners of German companies and the owners of Spanish companies are different people in in many cases, right? I mean, it's, right. I'm sure there's some overlap. Yeah. So it's you you are widening the circle of like an investor dominated economic model, and then also pushing out the boundaries of like Germany exports to the rest of Europe, or Germany plus a few other smaller countries, to now like all of Europe is going to be, I don't want to say dumping, but counting on um, consumers elsewhere to be the customers for these products because you're not paying people money. And that's, I guess, America's role 
in the the global jamboree. Right. And I, I think, yeah, just to, just to emphasize this, it, it, you know, you don't want to use the word dumping. I'm okay using the word dumping. We use it in the book, but I mean, the model they have for their countries literally would not work if they couldn't sell abroad. Right. It absolutely requires it. And, you know, that's not to say that we should, you know, sanction them on trade in order to force them to have, you know, their own, you know, domestic rebalancing. I mean, that's, I'm sure someone could come up with that as a conclusion. That's not, I don't think probably the, the best way to go about it, but it is, it is true that their, their model depends in sort of a, you know, a parasitic relationship with customers elsewhere. And if those customers obviously need and can afford their products, that's one thing. But if, if not, then it doesn't, you know, then it makes everyone ultimately worse off. And, you know, I mean, Spain is really interesting because Spain is often the one of the countries that's held up as a model for having, you know, taken on the lessons of the crisis and having learned from Germany. And what do you see happening in Spain? So first of all, you know, job security and labor contracts in Spain are much worse than they were before. Unemployment is still very high. And the extent that it's gone down, it's mostly because you have the kind of low-end, part-time, unprotected jobs that you saw grow, you know, behind German job growth. And uh, inequality has gone up a lot in Spain. Right. Like, the rich in Spain have done fine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just everyone else who's been harmed as a consequence of all this. So, I, you know, that's sort of, I think, in many ways, one one way of seeing the lesson of the world. Let's, let's, let's take another break and talk about how, how you solve everything. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So what, what would you suggest be sort of done about any of this uh because we're dealing with a lot of difficult structures right i mean the the european union has this kind of uh currency union without a without a fiscal authority which puts the member states under these kind of objective pressures uh, you have china is it's like an authoritarian regime like they don't they don't care what we say on this podcast um or what chinese people think i mean you see what's happening in hong kong right i mean they're, they're indifferent in a lot of ways you got america we've got our own sort of sets of problems even as we act as as the world's consumer like what would you what would you do donald trump calls you up or, or joe biden like what's the what's the plan it's an interesting question because you know the the question is is premise the idea that America should be leading a response to this and to a certain extent I'm not sure I mean there are things that the U.S. can do most of those things are sort of destructive in the sense of you know I like the extent that the models elsewhere are only possible because they can access export markets the one thing the U.S. could do is say you know no actually you can't access the export market. But that would ultimately be a destructive thing. That doesn't really solve the underlying problem. I mean, it basically just forces it back on societies where it has it. And maybe you can hope that they would, 
you know, reform themselves under economic pressure. But, you know, that might not happen. It just might make everyone worse off. So, I mean, the ideal solution and the way we phrase this in the book is that you really want to have the places that are creating these gluts and creating this underconsumption through their economic structure. You want them to fix that. So that means there are plenty of things that can be done in China, plenty of things that can be done in, in Germany specifically and Europe more generally. And that would be by by far the the first choice, um, and that would make everyone better off. You know, in practice, how does that happen? I don't. Know. I mean, it, China is not a democracy. You know, the the positive spin is that a lot of if you read the official statements of what Chinese leaders have said, uh-huh. they they basically endorse a lot of the things that we recommend. Now, the sort of the pessimistic interpretation is they've been saying that for a long time and it hasn't happened yet. So there are probably other things that are preventing them. Either they don't take it seriously or there are just institutional constraints that prevent people at the top from actually imposing their will lower down. But so you're saying there, the, the official documents say we're going to try to increase domestic consumption and yep. have a more consumption-led growth model. That's right. Um, and that's great, right? So like literally, if you just read those tomorrow, you'd be like, this is amazing. They, they've read Matt's book. Um, but if you realize that the documents have said that for 10 years, you might start to get skeptical. Right. I mean, even more than just saying that consumption should be leading growth, they even go further. And actually, a lot of the specific recommendations we have about, you know, for example, one of the things that we talked about earlier is that a lot of workers in cities are rural migrants that don't have the same legal rights. So basically, you know, you pay taxes into the local social security system, which provides for education and health care, but then you can't actually access mm-hmm. that education and health care when you live there. Um, you know, they recognize as an issue. They want to fix that. They, they want to have some kinds of changes in the way, you know, labor own company relationships can work. They talk about how they want to improve the nature of the unemployment insurance system and the healthcare system. They talk about how they want to improve environmental regulation. There are a lot of things they point to. And there's some things that they actually have done. I mean, they have improved, you know, compared to where it was, say, 15 years ago, access to health insurance is higher. Compared to where it was 15 years ago, you know, environmental protection is better. There are certain things, they have been moving in the right direction, a lot of those mm-hmm. things. It's just that it hasn't been enough. And they also haven't done a lot of the big things. So it, again, it makes you wonder. And, and part of that you can point to as well, you know, despite sort of the look from the outside, actually a lot of power is devolved to the provincial government uh-huh. and, and things like that. And so it's sort of hard. But but still, you know, as you said, the pessimistic interpretation is why, you know, if they all keep saying this, they've been saying it quite frankly even before the financial crisis, right. you know, in 2008, they're like, it still hasn't happened. So and a lot of things have gotten, you know, worse in some ways. So that's a big issue. I mean, I more hope for Europe because uh-huh. Europe's a democracy. But, you know, the problem there is that it's still a tough argument to get people to wrap their heads around. No, I mean, I mean even now, Europe struck me as 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 closer to a conceptual issue, right? I mean, I I, I have hope for Europe sometimes because the official government documents like don't say this kind of stuff, you know, like they they, they <laughs> haven't traditionally, and so it's kind of like, well, maybe you could just talk them into it, right? Like maybe people would would think about it differently, and we have seen this kind of ray of, of of hope, right? The French and German governments together put together, I'm not sure I really understand it, but it's like some kind of proposal for like an EU level, we're going to borrow some money and spend it on helping with the, the COVID pandemic, which is like, I don't know, that's, it's like governmenting 101, like <laughs> you borrow some money to help in a, in a, in a pandemic, but it's the first time that we've seen taking that kind of, like, responsibility for a fiscal problem up to that Brussels level. That's right. And and today, I think actually 
the European Commission in Brussels basically have their own version of this plan. And, and exactly, the idea is that instead of having each country borrow to pay to deal with relief from the virus, you have the European Commission as a whole borrow and then distribute aid accordingly. So for example, like Germany might have the easiest time borrowing, but it has done relatively well at actually combating the virus and is relatively fortunate that, you know, they don't have to worry about the absence of a tourist season. Right. Right. Greece actually, you know, Greece is really sort of the unluckiest country in this whole thing because they actually were very aggressive early on in stopping the virus. They basically haven't had really any cases or deaths for the most part. Like it's been remarkably successful, but they're still screwed because they depend on. Right. They really depend on summer tourism and it doesn't matter if they're fine, if no one else can go there. So that's a, you know, again, like that's a perfect example of wouldn't it be nice if like they could borrow, you know, someone could borrow on their behalf that has a lower credit rating and, and help them out. And the idea essentially is it seems to be they're doing that. And the amounts they're talking about right now are still on the low end relative to the scale of the problem. I mean, it's hundreds of billions of euros, which is a lot of money, but like compared to a hit that's in the trillions of euros, you know, but it could get scaled up. So that's the hope. I mean, you're getting back to like the overall structural problem that Europe has had and basically still has, but might soon be fixed if this is you know the positive indication, is that governments are always on their own. Right. And if something bad happens, your choices are essentially default, go through something like Greece did, go through something like Italy did, where basically you had an elected you know, democratically elected government just get kicked out by, you know, a cabal of essentially your local central bank and the ECB, which is what happened in 2011 with Berlusconi and uh, replaced by Mario Monti, you know. Or you just endure massive amounts of economic pain because you just cut things yourself, which is essentially what happened in the Baltics. And a reasonable person might look at this experience and say, we don't want to have that happen to us. And so we're just going to structurally run things where the government is perpetually too tight, but at least we don't have to worry about something blowing up in our face. Because, you know, who wants to go through any of those scenarios? And you see that basically across the board. This is also what happened, incidentally, after the Asian financial crisis in Asia. It's why Korea, you know, we talked about Korea earlier Mm -hmm. having trade deficits until 97, 98. Then they had the Asian financial crisis, and they said, nope, nope, we're not doing that again. And they've had surpluses ever since. And you know, China looks what happens in Indonesia, where Suharto is kicked out after decades of power because they say, nope, we're not going to do that. And you know, this is what happens in Europe. So after the European crisis, governments and, and across the board, like we're just going to run things really tightly. It's not going to be, you know, and the problem is you do that at the collective level. Everyone does it. It's just this massive, massive problem, underinvestment, taxes being too high, wages are too low. And like everyone's just worse off. And they could fix that by having, you know, if there were confidence that if something bad happened, they weren't completely on their own, that actually like the European Commission or some other equivalent entity could borrow on their behalf, that the ECB, the European Central Bank would stand behind that debt. They could be like a normal country, right? essentially a normal economic zone. And then things would be a lot better for them. And that would make them much better off and also make the world a lot better off. And so the encouraging news that you're not, you know, you're pointing to is that maybe they're going in that direction. Right. I mean, it seems like a, uh, even if the amount of money involved is not you know, equal to the, to the scale of the challenge. It's a it's sort of a point of principle, right? That like right. there is there at least might be a European uh, budget function. And I mean, so th- the European Commission it does have a budget, but the way it exists now is it's a it's a contributory scheme. It's like um, right. the Articles of Confederation, where each member state like forwards a certain amount of money based on I don't know what the formula is exactly, uh, and then the Commission does whatever. And this would be a switch to more like how the contemporary American government does, where the highest unit is like the 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 boss borrower. And the central bank, which controls the currency, stands behind the central government debts. And then, you know, because 
whatever. These are like longstanding, stable democratic societies. Uh, we trust that they that they can they can repay money. Although the the one thing that gives me pause about this whole thing is that I do feel like it gets Germans back into their headspace where people are asking them to like help out, you know, these profligate Southern Europeans when I, I do think the main thing that you were asking Germans to do is to help themselves out. Like it helps other people as a secondary consequence, right? But like the core of this isn't that we want German the savings of wealthy German people to be transferred to Portuguese people. And so we want it to be transferred to German people. Right. And I, I think that's absolutely right. And, I, and, you know, in this particular moment in time, maybe we want a little bit of both. Yeah. But, but right in general, but in general, that's right. And, and, uh, you know, will this address that? I don't know. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, and, and we mentioned this a little bit in the book is that the big shifts sort of in the German private sector in terms of, you know, wealth going from workers to companies and so forth. That was really a story from, you know, up until about 2007, 2008. And what happened since then is essentially things started to improve. There was sort of a general rebalancing within the private sector economy, but that was more than offset by the changes in German fiscal policy in terms of, you know, the government's taxes and spending. And, you know, they they changed their constitution to basically make it impossible to borrow. And so even though there actually was some, were some encouraging bits of news uh, in terms of the way wages, the distribution between wages and profits and things like that, um, that had been swamped by government policy. So at this point, if government policy is changing, that might be, I'm not going to say enough, but that would be you know, incredibly helpful in terms of the overall the overall mix here. And I think, but you know, I I, we'll I, I think this like boggles people's minds if they if they don't know it. But the um, the the, the nominal yield on German bonds is negative all across the the distribution, right? So you can think about it in different ways in terms of like what would you ideally like to see the government do, but it's almost like a caricature of like people who are like, well, we should run the government like a business. And it's like, well, why should you like, like, yes, like the government has an army and police and like, they can make people pay more in taxes than they receive in services. But like, why would, why would you want to do that? Right? Like what, right. what is the, what is the purpose? And like, if I've been reading recently a, a book about, um, you know, the Norman conquest of England. And so they also did this, right? Like having overrun the country with their foreign knights, they established a system in which they taxed people a lot more for no reason. And that was so the like conquering barons could have big castles. But it's a, it's a democracy, right? So either they should spend this money on something or they could cut tax because taxes are really high yeah. in Europe. I mean, to take, to take the government like a business analogy a little more seriously, like like at least in a U.S. business school, the standard advice is you want to have your credit rating be, you know, BBB, which essentially is like just enough above junk that you get that sort of broader investor base, but like as low as possible, because otherwise you're not borrowing enough and you're just sort of leaving money on the table. <laughs> Germany's taking the opposite approach. Right. And then, of course, you know, to further the, the business school examples, then you use that borrowing capacity to reward your shareholders, which in a democracy would be the, the citizens. So, you know. Actually, and this is a really good example. Like Germany should run itself like a like the German government sure. would benefit tremendously, and German people would benefit tremendously from running like a business. And like, yes, if you if you, you know, they have been this, investing in assets. If you think of the citizens as shareholders, then it's like right. then it's like yeah, like it's it's going well. Like have have a party, right? You you gotta you yeah. gotta lever up, do the special dividend, right? 
and also, you know, invest in assets that you haven't been, you know, maintaining because, you know, the sort of blinkered view about you want to maintain surpluses at all times means that you're just leaving a lot of money on the table by not taking advantage of worthwhile investment opportunities. Right. And I think, you know, we, we touched on this before, but I, I, I think that sort of uh, the financialization of thinking about like how you secure the future is sort of so pernicious, right? That like as a house, I'd like I'm a person, right? Right. Uh, it makes a lot of sense for me to save for the future by like having assets in accounts. Like I have some stuff in my house, but at a certain point it's like, well, I don't want like a giant stack of physical commodities. You know, it it would be annoying. It's way more convenient to have money. Uh, But a country actually does need like tangible assets more than money because uh, countries are big. uh, They're important problems that can only be solved at a kind of infrastructural level. And that's how you that's how you do it. Like your central government having a big bank account is not useful to people compared to having, you know, a well-educated population or like a bridge that gets you where you want to go. Yeah, I mean, I I agree 100 percent that thinking about it like a household is wrong. I think you know, I don't know if we disagree on this, but sort of my one of my bugbears is actually like if governments really thought about things the way real businesses did, uh-huh. they would behave a lot more like we think would be appropriate. Because <laughs> I said they would they would invest a lot more in their physical infrastructure. They'd be a lot less afraid of you know deficits are you know sort of nobody tr- like okay your cash flow is negative because. Your, your, your free cash flow is negative because you're doing a lot of CapEx. Like nobody would necessarily judge you negatively for that, um, which essentially is what it would mean if you're running a budget deficit to invest in a worthwhile infrastructure. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, the, the, the sort of they have in many ways, like they take the household perspective, the extreme as well. We, the German government, you know, if it's bad to have any debt, everything we have is a credit card debt. Although, you know, if you found a credit card that you could borrow at negative interest rates, obviously you'd probably treat it a little differently right. than the credit card where you borrow at 20%. So, you know, again, like they're not thinking about this in a sort of a logical way. It's, I think it's very, I think it's much more ideological than anything else, and uh, which is too bad. I mean, the good news is that maybe that can be changed, but I don't know. I mean, even you know, the good news we were talking about before with the common borrowing, it is good news in the fact that it's backed by Germany and France and Italy and Spain together. When they like the four countries basically never agree on anything right. historically and economic policy, that's very encouraging. But you still have some countries that are saying they don't want to do it, like Sweden. Was it Sweden, Denmark, Austria, and the Netherlands? Uh, the so-called frugal four. Yeah. Uh, are saying no, we don't want to do this. We're, we'll only lend money. But we should say we we, we focused a lot on on Germany because Germany is um, so much bigger than the Netherlands. Uh, but in terms of the sort of like ideological spirit of Europe, yeah. um, it's actually the littler countries are they're like even oh, yeah. worse. Um, and the and oh, the yes. Dutch in particular are like maniacal. Yeah, the Dutch are basically more German than the Germans in terms of like the stereotypes, anyway. Yeah. And some of it does seem to me to be that, like, the, the smaller you are, right, the more sense the kind of basic model of, well, we don't need to worry if the numbers add up because we can export. Like, right. it, it makes more sense, right? Like, what Ireland does does not impact the global economy because uh, it's, it's... Don't tell Brad Setzer <laughs> that. Well, it's just, you know, it's it's little. Like, the Netherlands is little, right? It, Germany is big, though. And, like, then Germany right. plus Sweden, Finland, Austria, like, that that's right. really big, right? And that that's right. the I mean, problem, is that is that the countries can be eccentric if they want to, and it's sort of their own business. Uh, but as an agglomeration, this is like a really big block yeah, of absolutely. austerity countries, and it's it's a problem globally. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is that I think that's, that's absolutely right. A lot of German policymakers, I think, basically see themselves in isolation as a small to medium country in a big world, which in the if you think of all of the countries of Europe behaving the same way, and then you think of them as one country, as you said, like, Europe is the second largest economy in the world. It's not China. It's it's Europe. Europe is, is it's a little smaller than the U.S., but not by a lot. So if a country that's almost the same, or, you know, economic block that's almost the same size as the U.S. all behaves in a certain way, and it's this way, that's going to create massive, massive problems in the rest of the world. And, you know, the idea that they think that it's fine is just, I think it's a failure of, of thinking and understanding how, how numbers add up, right. <laughs> essentially. <laughs> you know, it was already creating a problem within Europe beforehand, and then you suddenly create, you know, in many ways, you want to understand how Europe, Europe as a whole developed into this massive surplus for the rest of the world. The reason it wasn't a problem before 2008 is because you had these big surpluses in Germany and the Netherlands and Sweden, and they were absorbed internally by Spain in particular, Greece, Ireland, and then all those other countries stopped doing that. Right. Like they couldn't do it anymore. Basically, the Germans told them, you know, another the ECB and so forth told them they couldn't. And, you know, there wasn't any offsetting change. So basically, we had this massive change. Like the actual big change since, you know, 2008 was that all the countries that had been running deficits in Europe stopped. And some of them now actually have quite large surpluses. I mean, right now it's who knows, but like, you know, as of the end of 2019, sure. large surpluses, Spain, Italy, and so forth. And, you know, that has a massive effect. You know, if countries such as Germany and the Netherlands aren't adjusting at all, which they weren't, then like the overall effect aggregate on the global economy is huge. And that's what, what happened. Okay. Um, so before I let you go, I, I like to ask people, uh, you know, is there, is there anything you, you wish I'd asked you about? Uh, anything you, you got to get off your chest while we're here? I think one thing that's interesting that we talk about a bit in the book is that sometimes, you know, inequality and, and sort of concentration of income and spending can be helpful. You know, we talked about it a little bit before in the context mm-hmm. of China, but it's just sort of worth you know, highlighting this, that it's not as if, I mean, it's certainly true now, and it's probably true in general more often than it's not, that, you know, these unequal distributions of income leads to underconsumption, underinvestment, just problems generally. But there are situations where if your economy is running at full tilt, you know, there really isn't any spare capacity to invest, but you know there are good investments to be made. The only way you can you can make that happen is some combination of imports from abroad, which can be very helpful. And, you know, reducing consumption domestically, which generally means, you know, increasing inequality in some way, whether it's concentrating income in the government, which people don't always think of as increasing inequality, but I think is useful. Sure. Um, or, you know, increasing inequality, sort of the private sector so that, you know, industrialists are able to invest. We haven't lived in a world like that in a long time. I don't know if we ever will <laughs> in our lifetime, but like it has happened in the past. It's, it's a common feature of, of a lot of industrialization stories historically. And... Um, I think it's very useful as a framework for just understanding that, you know, how the distribution of income affects growth. You really just think about in terms of what the society's investment needs are mm-hmm. and, you know, what kind of a world they you know and, and whether the economy is running at full capacity or not. Right, right, right. So to say that, like, it's not it's not like these ideas come totally from nowhere. Right. Like there are real development success stories. That are yes. that are that are based on this. It's just that we've moved to a point in time when it's a question of the aggregations, right? It's like the the world as a whole now has too much, too many places trying to sort of accumulate in this in this inegalitarian way. You know, actually, I don't, whatever. Well, we'll go on a detour. Uh, yeah, you mentioned this in, in your email, but like this is a a sort of classic of like old time. Uh, scholarship on the on the pre-World War One 
economy, right? Yep. Is the idea that you had these imperial blocks and they were incredibly inegalitarian and the industrialists, like, they like wanted to sell stuff to somebody, but they also didn't want to pay people more. Um, and, and that was the sort of basis of, of classical uh, economic and even geopolitical competition. Exactly. And so, I mean, one of the sort of the person who wrote the epigraph to our book, and we, we cite him in the introduction and then a little bit elsewhere, is a guy named John Hobson, who was a, an English economist and sort of social critic. And he wrote this book called Imperialism. And it was a, basically the whole argument of the book was that imperialism is stupid, it's unnecessary. And, it's, and, and crucially, not only is it immoral and so forth, but it's bad for people in the imperialist countries. And his argument, it's amazing reading it now because it just fits in you know, basically just quote it at length and, you know, just change a few facts and you get our book in some ways. But uh, it's that, you know, you have a situation where the spending power is so concentrated among people who aren't spending on goods and services. They just want to invest in things. But there's no point in investing domestically because the worker, you know, the people who live there can't afford to buy the things. So you're not going to build more factories. So you have to go abroad and get people there to buy your stuff. And that's where imperialism comes from, essentially. And that was the world of the late, you know, 1800s, early 1900s. And, you know, that world has reappeared in various forms after, you know, since then. I mean, in some ways you could think of, you know, obviously a lot of differences in important ways. But in some ways you can think of the U.S. as essentially functioning as an imperial colony <laughs> uh, in terms of its economic role right. in the global system um, of a lot of other countries. And, you know. But that's not good for anybody. Right. Exactly. I mean, so, I, think, <laughs> right. I, mean I think, yeah, you, you don't want to take the analogy too too literally we haven't been colonized right. but but i mean I, I think it's like hobson's basic point that like this relationship right that the colonizer and the colony had back then was not actually beneficial to the typical member right. of the colonizing society and i think that cuts across a lot of sort of um uh notions people left-wing people pick up about sort of how imperialism functioned. I, it speaks to an older version of left-wing thought, right, which is right. that the imperial project- It's a very sort of Marxist right, is, that, yeah. is that the imperial project was a global method of class suppression rather than a uh, construction of a useful racial hierarchy that was helping the English working class, that it was- hurting almost everybody to create this kind of industrialist-led economic order, right? And that's the, you know, cl class war versus trade war or, you know, imperial war back exactly. then, right? And that's sort of the the message here. Exactly. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Matt Klein, uh, economics commentator at Barron's. Uh, the book is Trade Wars Are Class Wars. Uh, it's great. I recommend you pick it up. Think about some some problems that have nothing to do with infectious diseases. Uh, really enjoy yourself. Um, thank you uh, so much for, for joining me. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Thank you very much for having yeah, me. Yeah, and the weeds will be back on Friday. Yeah.